You are listening to a recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.sdrosecc.org. As we mentioned earlier, with lots of people being gone for the Peru mission trip, uh, we're going to be taking a break from our sermon series in 1 Corinthians, and instead, we'll be looking at a passage from our church's Bible reading plan. So if you've been reading along with us in the Bible reading plan, we are getting close to the end of the book of Genesis. And so for today's text, we will actually be studying the final chapter of that book. And so if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. Uh, and if you need a Bible, you can just lift up your hand. We'll have some people coming around and, and handing out some Bibles for you guys to look at the Word. Sweet. So Genesis fifty fifteen through 21, the Word of God says this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead... They said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Let's pray. Father, we know and believe that your word is living and active, God. And so I pray that this morning you would pierce hearts. God, help us to see in the story of Joseph your sovereign hand working all things together for good. Help us to see that this story points us to Jesus and your hand of salvation through Christ. Help us to see that you are sovereignly in control of all of our lives. Lord, in this moment, guide us by your spirit. Lord, speak through me. Give us understanding of this text. Help me to say true things, God. Lord, be glorified this morning. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and will pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So obviously, we are jumping right into the end of an ongoing story. So in order for us to understand this passage fully, we need to first answer a few questions. Number one, who is Joseph? 
Number two, who are his brothers? And number three, what in the world did they do to him? And so what we're going to do here is we're going to attempt to briefly summarize the story of Joseph and his brothers. Now, it's a long story. The full story can be found in Genesis chapters 37 through 50. But in order for us to understand what we're looking at in our passage today, we're going to try and just hit some of the key highlights of the story of Joseph. So bear with me. We'll pay attention. We are going to try and get the story of Joseph and his brothers. So here we go. Earlier in the book of Genesis, we are introduced to a man named Jacob. Now, Jacob had a total of 10 sons, and his 11th son that he had was named Joseph. Now, Jacob loved all of his children, but Joseph was the clear favorite. Jacob loved Joseph. Joseph was the baby of the family. He was the son that Jacob had in his old age, and so Jacob spoiled Joseph. So much so that he even gave Joseph this special robe that had uh, all many colors on it. And so it's no surprise that in his favoritism of Joseph, this caused issues between Joseph and his brothers. Genesis 37 verse 4 says this, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. And they could not speak peacefully to him. Now, this got even worse when Joseph began to have strange dreams. Because in these dreams, Joseph saw visions of all of his brothers bowing down before him. And in one dream in particular, Joseph even saw the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to him. And... and, and, just for a moment, can we, can we take a second to imagine this? Now, in any given family, all of us know that there is the potential for sibling rivalries, right? It doesn't take much for siblings to, to think that the other one is the favorite or to have issues amongst them. But can you imagine for a moment, here is Joseph. He is the clear favorite. He is showered by love from Jacob, more so than all the other brothers. And then he just shows up at the table one morning for breakfast, and he says, oh, by the way, guys, the craziest thing happened last night. I actually had a dream that all of you would bow down to me one day. You can imagine that that would not go over well at the family table. And it doesn't. This only fuels the jealousy and the hatred that Joseph's brothers have for him, and so what do they do? They come up with a plan, and they scheme against their baby brother, and ultimately what they do is they take Joseph, they throw him into a pit, they sell him into slavery, and they take his robe, the special robe that his dad had given him, the robe with many colors, and they dip that robe in blood, and they bring it back to their father Jacob to make it look like Joseph had been eaten by a wild animal. And this is the story that they tell their father. It is total wickedness, betrayal, hatred, and evil. But the story's not over for Joseph because Joseph ends up being taken to Egypt and he is eventually sold off and he becomes the servant of an Egyptian officer named Potiphar. And as a servant, Joseph works his tail off and his master Potiphar 
actually likes him, the word says. Genesis 39, verses 3 through 4. Joseph's master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that Joseph did to succeed in his hands. And so Joseph found favor in his sight, and he attended him, and the master made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. So obviously these are not ideal circumstances, being hated by your brothers, sold into slavery, but it looks like so far things are actually going pretty well for Joseph, right? Well, there's a problem. You see, the Bible says that Joseph was cute. The word says he was handsome in form and appearance, and Potiphar's wife, the master's wife, begins to take notice. And so what does she do? She starts enticing Joseph. She invites Joseph to come in and to lay down with her and to sleep with her behind her husband's back. And Joseph miraculously tells her no. He does not want to betray his master. And more importantly, he does not want to sin against God. And so Joseph denies the wife several times. Until one day, Potiphar's wife decides to take action into her own hands. She makes a move on Joseph, and she grabs Joseph by his garment, and in the tussle, Joseph ends up running and fleeing from the house. And in the wickedness of the wife, she takes Joseph's garment, and she goes to her husband, and she frames Joseph. And she says, no, 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 actually what happened, Joseph tried to rape me. And she has his garment in her hand as the proof. And so Potiphar, the master, he's obviously enraged by this. He's furious, and he takes Joseph, and he throws Joseph into prison. And so once again, we are left with an innocent Joseph thrown into a terrible situation of suffering and harm, all because of other people's sin. What is God going to do with this? But the story continues. So now Joseph is in prison. And the word says that two of the prisoners that are in jail with Joseph, they begin to have dreams. And God gives Joseph the ability to interpret these dreams. So the prisoners, they come to Joseph and they ask him, what do these dreams mean? Joseph tells them what the dreams mean. And when those dreams come true, it is very clear in the story that God has given Joseph a very special gift. And so a few more years go by. Joseph is still in prison. He's trying to be faithful with the the cards that he has been dealt. And then one night, Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has a dream that he cannot shake. And so in trying to figure out what this this dream means for Egypt, what this dream means for Pharaoh, Joseph, out of prison, gets summoned to come and interpret the dream of Pharaoh. And God gives Joseph the ability to understand and know what the dream that Pharaoh had means. And in his understanding, Joseph predicts that Egypt will undergo a seven-year famine that will totally decimate the land and threaten to destroy the whole kingdom of Egypt. He tells this to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh believes him. 
So much so, in fact, Pharaoh is so pleased with Joseph and his wisdom and his discernment and his ability to know what this dream means that he actually takes Joseph out of the prison and he sets him as second in command over all of Egypt. And that, that, this is crazy to think about. Joseph goes from being the hated brother to being sold into slavery, to being a servant, to being falsely accused, thrown into prison, and now he is second in command only to Pharaoh over the entire kingdom of Egypt. The most powerful dynasty on the earth. And so what happens, lo and behold, Joseph's interpretation eventually comes true. Comes true. Egypt is wrought by a terrible famine. But because Joseph has been put in charge, and because he wisely stocked up years and years of food, all of Egypt is saved. Genesis 41, 56-7 says this, So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now this is where the story gets crazy because in the midst of Joseph overseeing the food distributions, guess who walks up? Joseph's brothers. The same brothers who hated him. The same brothers who sold him into slavery and left him for dead. Here they are, standing before Joseph, begging for food so that their families can survive. And the crazy part is they don't even recognize him. They don't recognize that this big and powerful Egyptian ruler who holds the fate of their lives in his hand They don't recognize that he is actually their baby brother who they betrayed all those years ago. Now, I've read this passage several times. I'm familiar with the story, but each time I read it, there's something in me at this point in the story that just wants this to be the moment where Joseph just drops the hammer on him, right? Like, oh, yeah, guys, you remember me? You remember your little brother that you sold off for some chump change? You remember me? Look at us now. What happened? Everything in me wants him to just like give it to him in the moment. But miraculously, by God's grace, even though Joseph is deeply grieved, he's deeply grieved seeing his brothers reliving everything that happened through a series of interactions, Joseph eventually reveals his identity to his brothers. And in doing so, he is merciful to them. Through tears, he asks for them to bring his father that thought he was dead all those years ago, and he reunites, he reunites with his father who loved him so much. And he eventually invites all the brothers and their family to come down to Egypt to be provided for with food and with homes. And Joseph blesses his brothers, and he takes care of them. In Genesis 45, Joseph reassures them, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And so in Joseph's mercy... All of his family is united in Egypt. They're given a special place in Pharaoh's kingdom. And Jacob, their father, lives a blessed final few years of his life 
before he passes away. And so this is where we land at our passage today, Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and will pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. As we look at this passage and really the entire story of Joseph, I want us to see three truths that are just all over this thing. And the first truth is this. Truth number one, man is evil. Man is evil. Now, in our story, this is clear from the beginning. What Joseph's brothers did to him was absolutely awful. They were so fueled with envy and with hate that they were willing to callously let their baby brother be taken away by strangers for money, sold off into slavery, taken to a faraway land, never to see him again, and then to fabricate a false story so that their father would think he was dead. And then we go further into the story and we see the the sexual immorality of Potiphar's wife who wanted to commit adultery on her husband with Joseph. And then when Joseph rejects her, she lies and she falsely accuses him of rape and he's thrown into jail for several years. It's evil. And then even at the end of the story, after there has been reconciliation and forgiveness between Joseph and his entire family, after they've all been living together in peace for years, Joseph's brothers are still afraid that Joseph will get revenge on them now that their father is gone. And so what do they do? They pathetically create a dying wish from their dad to ensure that Joseph doesn't do anything to them. Verse 16 says this, they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And the word says this, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He had forgiven them. He had provided for them. And even at the end, they still don't believe that he'll actually be merciful to them. Now, the sad reality is the characters in this story are not unique. The book of Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and uh, the, the book tells the account of how God created the world, about how God made man and women in his image, The book describes how mankind once had a perfect, sinless relationship with God and how God created us, mankind, to worship him and to enjoy his beautiful creation. But very quickly in Genesis, we see things go south. Men and women disobey. They sin against God. The relationship between man and God is fractured. Sin and death enter the equation. And even though God promises in Genesis 3 to one day restore all things and to defeat evil through the offspring of the woman, we see immediately in the chapters to follow that man's condition just continues to spiral and spiral out of control. In Genesis 4, Cain gets envious and he murders his own brother, Abel. Genesis 6, the corruption amongst the people was so great that that God actually floods the entire earth in judgment. 
And in Genesis 11, we see mankind try to, to build a tower to the heavens to make a name for themselves. The creation trying to steal glory away from the creator. A world filled with selfishness, pride, and death. And so it's actually pretty fitting that the whole second half of the book of Genesis tells the story of Joseph, who suffered so much at the hands of sinful, evil men. Now, uh, it would be easy for us to look and to think at all of this, like, gosh, look how wicked they are. But church, the reason why this is significant is because this is still the primary issue of our world today. It is my biggest issue. It is your biggest issue. We, all of us who have ever lived, we are sinners against a holy God. We have sinned against our maker, the one who created us, the one that created us for, for fellowship and relationship. We have gone away and done our own thing. It is all over scripture. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3 verse 23, very clear, for all, all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not some, all of us. Mark 7 Verse 20 through 23, Jesus' own words, he says this, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So ladies and gentlemen, each one of us in here is guilty before God. We're guilty of lying. We're guilty of, of lusting after someone who's not our husband or our wife. We're guilty of envying what other people have, or even just guilty of self-reliance and not worshiping God the way that we were created to worship him. So truth number one, man is evil. But we take heart in knowing that because our second truth that we see in the story of Joseph, that we see all throughout the story of scripture, and that we see even in our own lives today is this. Truth number two, God is sovereign over evil. If man is evil, God is sovereign over that evil. The crescendo of Joseph's story happens when he responds to his brother's pleas for mercy. Verse 18 says this, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. The fact that Joseph can say these words to his brothers 
after everything that they did to him, after all the turmoil that, that it caused in his life, the way that they disregarded him and the pain and suffering that he went through, the fact that he can say this and mean it, it is a miracle of God's grace. Because you have to think that there were moments in Joseph's life where he cried out to God, why God? Why? Why is this happening? When he's sold into slavery, why? When he's unjustly accused of something he didn't do and goes into prison, why, God? I've followed you, Lord. I've been faithful to you. I ran away from sin, and this is what I get? I can imagine that Joseph at times felt like God had forgotten all about him. We're not talking about just a few little instances. These are years worth. Years of suffering. Years of not knowing what exactly God was going to do. But at the end of Genesis, when Joseph is before his brothers, we see Joseph come to a profound conclusion about what had truly taken place in his life. That not only had God been with Joseph the entire time, but God was actually sovereignly ordaining all of it to happen to bring about the salvation of his family and in doing so the salvation of all of the land of Egypt. And scripture agrees with this. You remember when Joseph was first sold into slavery? Genesis 39 verse 2 says this, the Lord was with Joseph and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed. And then later on, after he flees temptation from Potiphar's wife and he gets falsely accused, thrown into prison, we see it again, Genesis 39, verse 20. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But, see this, the Lord was with Joseph. And he showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison actually put Joseph in charge of all the rest of the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because, here it is one more time, the Lord was with him. And whatever Joseph did, the Lord made it succeed. And so we see that at every moment in Joseph's journey, God was with him. When he was traveling to Egypt, taken away as a slave, God was with him. When he was working as a servant in Potiphar's house, God was with him. All the years that he spent in prison not knowing what's going to happen, God was with him. Even when he's given the task, the tall task of interpreting the king of Egypt's dream. Imagine if he got that wrong, what was going to happen to him? But hear what Joseph says about that moment. Genesis 41, 16. To Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give you a favorable answer about your dream. Even in a scary moment like that, that could change the whole fate of his life, God was with him. And lastly, when Joseph is raised up by Pharaoh, and he leads Egypt, God is with him. And so by the time that Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers who are trembling, not knowing what he's going to do to them, 
Joseph recognizes the sovereign hand of God in every single detail of his life. Genesis 45, verses 4 through 8. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. What is he going to say? What is he going to do? And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For what? God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. But God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and Lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. We say later on in our passage today, Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, do you hear the language here? God did this. God sent me here. God sent me to be a slave. God sent me to be a prisoner. God intended this. God meant this. God purposed this. And it's when we zoom out of the story, like Joseph was so wisely able to do, that we see an incredible reality about who God is. We see that God has a plan God has a good plan for his people, and God is so wise and so majestic and so powerful that he even uses the wicked intention of sinners to bring about his good purposes. He uses good, he uses evil, he uses all things to bring about his plan. It doesn't matter what sinful men do, God will accomplish his plans. His plans will not be thwarted. God is sovereign over even the worst kinds of evil. And we see it so clearly in the story of Joseph. Now we gotta ask ourselves, why is this important for us today? It's important because the story of Joseph and really the whole book of Genesis is a small foreshadowing of the much bigger drama that was going to unfold years later. Because you see, from the moment, at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, from the moment that, that man had sinned in the Garden of Eden, God had promised that there would be someone, there would be someone who would come to restore all that had been broken. Someone who would mend the relationship that had been broken between God and man. Someone who would bring us all back to the beauty and wonder of the Garden as it was originally designed to be. And the whole Old Testament traces this story. Who is going to be that someone? Who is going to be the one to come to restore and fix all of this? And we see after promises and covenants and hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting for the people of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth steps on the scene. And Jesus is different than anyone we've ever seen. Jesus miraculously heals sick people. Jesus speaks with God-like authority. Jesus brings dead people to life. He loves the people that no one else loves. He is sinless. He's perfect. 
And people begin to realize, slowly but surely, there's a few that begin to realize that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one. He is the promised offspring. He is the king who is supposed to come and take away the sins of the world. He is the one that's supposed to rule in righteousness. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he's here to do what no man could ever do. He is the solution. But just like the story of Joseph, sinful man does everything he can to try to stop God's plan. So what happens? The religious leaders of the day, they're envious of Jesus. They're envious of the attention that he's getting and the things that he does. They hate Jesus so much so that they scheme to falsely accuse Jesus and to get him crucified. Sound familiar? They arrest Jesus. They ridicule him. They spit on him. They hang him on a cross where he's held up by nails in his flesh. And they murder him as if he was a criminal. And in this moment, I mean, it looks like evil has won, right? Like sinful men, sinful men that are filled with hate and bloodthirst. Sinful men influenced by Satan himself attempting to stop the plan that God has set forward in motion to save the world. At the cross, it looks like they won. They've tortured and they have destroyed the Holy One. But God is sovereign over evil. You see, unbeknownst to everyone else at the time, God was working. In fact, God was sovereignly ordaining the whole ordeal to happen. And this brings us to truth number three. It's our last truth of the morning and is the most important truth that any of us can get. Truth number three, Jesus forgives our evil. Jesus forgives our evil. Man is evil. God is sovereign over evil. And we see this so clearly in Jesus. Jesus forgives our evil. Because you see, in the grand scheme of things, when we, when we zoom out and we look at the full biblical picture, guys, we are the brothers. We're the ones with the evil. We're the ones that have sinned against God. We're the ones that have been unfaithful. We are the reason that Jesus is there in the first place going to the cross on our behalf. And while that seems like really bad news, right? Like this is not a good thing. But just like God used the sins of Joseph's brothers to bring about that great plan of salvation for all of Egypt, God does the same thing with Jesus. And he does it on a monumental scale. God uses the sinfulness of man, our sin, our disobedience to God. He used the sinfulness of the people who tried to murder Jesus and murdered him. He uses the sinfulness of man to provide a way of eternal salvation for sinful man. 
He uses man's own sin to make the way for salvation so that they can be forgiven for their sin. It's crazy. Like he's in control of all of it. And you have to look back and just laugh like, oh my goodness, he's got it rigged. All of it. Because by Jesus dying on the cross, Jesus took on the wrath of God that all of us in this room deserved. And then by resurrecting from the grave three days later, he defeated the curse of sin. He showed his authority over life and death. And now Jesus offers to all of us forgiveness of our sins, a restoration and a relationship with God. He offers us eternal life forever to anyone who will believe and follow him. And in in accomplishing what God did at the cross, God did exactly what he always does. God takes the story. And in the moment where you think it's going to go one way, he flips it on its head. In the midst of what looked to be the most chaotic and hopeless moment in human history, literally God in the flesh, murdered by his own creations. Ladies and gentlemen, there has never been a darker moment in human history. The creation murdering the creator and thinking that they had done something. In that moment, the darkest moment, the most hopeless moment, God was actually performing the greatest work of salvation anyone could have ever imagined. Us, sin, death, Satan, the religious leaders, the people who murdered him, all working like puppets in the hand of an almighty God to do exactly what he purposed before the foundations of the world. In Jesus, the curse of sin is reversed. In Jesus, the finality of death is beaten. In Jesus, sinful people who do not deserve a second chance, do not deserve forgiveness, they don't deserve a relationship with God, they don't deserve uh, to be loved by him. And in Jesus, we are forgiven. A song we're going to sing in a few moments just describes this insane reality. It says this, man of sorrows, lamb of God, by his own betrayed. The sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. Sent of heaven, God's own son, to purchase and redeem, and hear this, and to reconcile the very ones who nailed him to that tree. I can imagine Jesus just imagine Jesus in the middle of his suffering knowing that what he is enduring in the moment of excruciating agony will actually be for the good of those who are driving the nails through his hands. That is insane. Only a a beautiful, merciful, gracious God can do something like that. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. What we meant for evil, God meant for good. God gets the final say. This is so clear in the story of Joseph, and it is clear at the cross of Jesus Christ.
and I'll just add this in here. This is a crazy reality. It's something that I saw when I was preparing for the sermon. So not only is the story of Joseph that we see in Genesis uh, like a foreshadowing of what was later to happen with Jesus, but it's actually historically a pivotal moment that even allows for Jesus to come in the first place. Because what you see is in Joseph's mercy, he not only saves his family, his brothers, and his family are the descendants of Abraham, they're they're the descendants of the promise that God made all the way at the beginning that would eventually bring Jesus, but specifically Joseph saves the family of one of his brothers, Judah. And it is through the family lineage of Judah that Jesus would be born many, many years later. So God working through Joseph to be merciful to his brothers is not only, um, it not only gives us an example of this, this type of gospel grace, but it actually directly helps accomplish that gospel. Truth number one, man is evil. Truth number two, God is sovereign over evil. Truth number three, Jesus forgives our evil. So what do we do with this? I have three takeaways for us as we walk away from this passage. Takeaway number one, receive God's forgiveness. Receive God's forgiveness. If you're here this morning, and you don't know Jesus, or you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, I plead with you, run to him. Run to Jesus. It is clear in the story of Joseph, and it is clear throughout all the scriptures that mankind is sinful. We're all sinners, and we are all in desperate need of the Savior. And if you're contemplating that, if you're contemplating going to God and recognizing your need for him, I want you to be encouraged by what we see in Joseph and later what we see in Jesus. When Joseph's brothers wondered about his willingness to show grace to them, what did Joseph do? He reassured them. Verse 21, do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And Joseph comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. They did not deserve for him to do that. But he showed them incredible mercy. And even more so, Jesus offers this same kind of welcoming, belonging, forgiveness, and love. In Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, Jesus says this. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Receive God's forgiveness. Takeaway number two, forgive like Jesus forgives. Forgive like Jesus forgives. It would have been absolutely foolish For any one of Joseph's brothers, after being forgiven of so much that they had done to him, to then turn around and try to deny grace to somebody else, right? I would say, you're a fool. You don't deserve forgiveness, and you've been shown so much mercy, and then you're going to deny that to somebody else? How much crazier is it that any one of us who are in here in Christ 
who have been forgiven and loved eternally by the Savior, that we could ever deny forgiveness to another sinner in our lives. Now, I say that and I recognize that's hard. It's very hard. It is so hard to forgive somebody when they've hurt you and there's been damage. I know it's hard. But I also know that there's a high chance that there's not someone in this room that has experienced the kind of cruelty that Joseph endured. Years worth of just betrayal and betrayal and betrayal to then come back and show mercy. And I know that no one in here has experienced what Jesus Christ experienced on our behalf to be merciful to us. And so I just want to encourage you, whatever it is that you're hanging on to, whether it's with a friend or a family member or your spouse, just surrender it to Jesus. Live in grace. Grace received and grace given. Forgive like Jesus forgives. And lastly, takeaway number three, trust in the sovereignty of God. Trust in the sovereignty of God. As I was preparing for this, I thought and prayed deeply about Joseph's life and all of his suffering and how God used all of it for his good, the people's good, and his glory. And it dawned on me that in here this morning, there is likely a lot of suffering going on. Maybe you're in here and you've been wrongly accused of something. Maybe you're in here and you have been deeply betrayed by family, friends, people you trust and love. Maybe you are in here and you're suffering with the loss of a parent or a child, someone you deeply love, and you're wondering, what, what are you going to do with that, God? Maybe you're in here and you're struggling with infertility and you don't know what's going to happen. Maybe you're in here and you're just drowning in the shame of something that you've done or something that someone has done to you. And you're just in a season of life that you're just, your life's just been rocked and you don't know, God, what are you going to do in this? I pray that you are encouraged by God's sovereign hand, working in the suffering of Joseph to bring about good, working and orchestrating things to accomplish salvation in Jesus. And I pray for followers of Jesus in this room, I pray that you're comforted by the rock-solid promise we have as believers that's given to us in Romans 8, verse 28. It says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things, the good, the bad, the ugly, the moments where you just don't see a way out, you don't know exactly how God is going to bring about good for this, our promise is this. It's our hope now, and it's our hope in the life to come. I'll close with this. A few years back, 
I read an article written by Greg Morse, and this article talked about how, how we as Christians can have assurance of God's total control over our lives and that we can have assurance about his good plans for us even when we face difficulties or even when we doubt that he is truly good and truly for us. So just be encouraged by these words from Greg Morse. He says this, God's love stands beyond our circumstances as far as the stars stand beyond the anthill. God's love is beyond comprehension. It spans from everlasting to everlasting. And because of the cross, it does not deflate due to sin. God will stop loving his people only when the moons overthrow their maker's command or when the sun can depart from the course that he has set for it, or when the heavens can be measured. Never. He says, are we getting it? God wrote in permanent marker at Calvary. There he crucified all reason to distrust him. It's there from sin and self we cease. There from Jesus we simply take joy and life and rest and peace. Oh, for grace to trust him more. May we be a people who trust the sovereign God who loves us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we love you, God. We thank you for your word. We thank you um, for the story of Joseph that we see and how perfectly it encapsulates what you were later to do through Jesus the Christ, our Savior. God, I pray that you would give us a trust in you. Lord, whether it's our own sin, whether it is suffering that we are enduring, whether it's just the brokenness of this life that we're in, God, I pray that you would supernaturally, by your Spirit, help us to trust you, to follow you, to glorify you, and may we, at the end of the day, when we are with you one day in heaven, God, be able to rejoice and celebrate, God, that you were indeed working all things together for good. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.